Prepare the Way of the Lord is the title of the sermon for today, for this morning, and I want to start off with this one statement. God does some of His best work in the wilderness. Let me say it again. God does some of His best work in the wilderness. Malachi chapter 4, 1 through 6 sets the stage for today's sermon. And really, Mark 1, 1 through 8 is a continuation from Malachi chapter 4, 1 through 6. Because there would be approximately 400 years of silence where the people of God, Israel, would not hear from God. God would be silent. And for people that heard from God for hundreds, thousands of years, all of a sudden, to not hear from their God was a wilderness experience. For the nation of Israel... As Malachi wrote this, it's been about 70 years since they returned out of exile. They were in exile for 70 years in Babylon as prisoners of war, as a sign of God's judgment. And then they were allowed to come back to Jerusalem to inhabit the area of Jerusalem again. And it's been about 70 years since that return. In that time, they rebuilt the new temple Of course, it's nothing like Solomon's temple that was built. It was just a lesser version. You know, I don't know how many of us have had a bigger home and had to downsize to a smaller home. That's kind of what it was. It was still a temple and the temple, but some of the glory wasn't there anymore. They rebuilt the walls surrounding Jerusalem. So there was a lot of reconstruction going on, a lot of building going on. However, the hearts of the Israelites were still in ruin. Their hearts were still in ruin. All the physical things were being built, but the spiritual nature of the nation was in ruin. I mean, their hearts were cold and hard towards God. How do you feel this morning as you think about God? Is it warm and and soft and excited about our God Worship was mechanical and done out of obligation. I have to do this. We're Jews. This is what we do. We worship God. It was mechanical. No passion. No heart in it. And therefore, the Israelites were in a spiritual wilderness period. And the wilderness is designed by God for, to be a time and place for testing. A time of transition. And there's a lot of tension of the unknown. This is the wilderness. Perhaps you're in it yourself right now. A time of trial or maybe you're in the middle of a transition. And perhaps there's a lot of tension of a lot of things to be known. And the Israelites were wondering over these 400 years, where are you, God? I thought we were your chosen people. God, where are you? Are we not You're chosen. Well, God has been silent. That's true. True, He has been silent. But He was always near the people of Israel. He had not forgotten about His promises to His people. He had not forgotten about Israel. And He was merely preparing them to hear from Him. 
because they got dull of hearing over the course of centuries of hearing from him. C.S. Lewis famously once wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. Pain is the megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That's what C.S. Lewis said. God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. The wilderness may be difficult. However, how God designs the wilderness in the Bible is that it's actually a time of hope. Because something good is about to happen. And God is preparing the people to hear from him. To hear good news from him. So the wilderness may feel difficult and dry and lonely. No one wants to go through the wilderness. But God is doing something. And something good is about to happen. Renewal and transformation is just around the corner. And Malachi closed off his, his portion in the Old Testament with a promise that God will be sending a messenger ahead of him. And this is where we pick up in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, 1 through 8. And this is exciting, understanding all this background, because God breaks his silence through John the Baptist as John the Baptist appears in the wilderness. So John, Mark chapter 1, 1 through 8, if you have your Bibles or your phones, please turn and read with me. And let's rise as we read Mark chapter 1, 1 through 8. Mark 1, 1 through 8. With all that context in mind, with all those 400 years of wilderness period in mind, let's read Mark 1, 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you. Who will prepare your way? The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. And his diet was, was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming, to, one, one is coming who is mightier than I. And I'm not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your precious, precious words. Thank you for speaking us through your words. Thank you, Lord. I pray your spirit will allow us to understand your word. Pray your spirit will allow me to preach effectively to your glory. And I pray, Lord, your spirit would... Plant your word deep in our hearts. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. Okay, during the 400 years of wilderness period, Israel had a lot of things going on. It was the revolving door of emperors and kings. During these 400 years, church, they had three different empires ruling over them. Israel no longer ruled itself anymore. Uh-uh. 
At once they had Babylon take over and then they had Persia take over and the Persian Empire let them come back. And during those 400 years, Persia was in control and then Greece was in control and then Rome would eventually take over. And when Persia was taking over, a, a, a unique figure in the history of the world named Alexander the Great became the king of the Greek Empire and he led the Greeks over to the Persian Empire. He took over. He was an amazing uh, war hero. He was a general. He was a genius in this way. And it's recorded, church, that when he took over, he actually stepped foot into Jerusalem. That's what is recorded. And in that day, in the ancient day, before any kings and rulers would step into a brand new area, it was very common to send the herald ahead of them, right? And the herald will come to announce the coming of the king. The king is coming! Make way, the king is coming! Alexander the Great, or whoever is coming, make way for the king. Let's receive your new king with open arms. He's coming. The herald would try to prepare the local people to receive the new king with some level of warmth, in other words, the herald would be in charge of rolling out the red carpet for the king that would come in. And John the Baptist was a herald for a different type of king. So as we go to point number one, John the Baptist prepared the way of the Lord by heralding the Lord's coming. This is out of, out of verse 2 and 3. Mark begins with scripture. Verse 2 says, as, is it, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Mark turns to Scripture right away. At the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, he turns to Scripture. Verse 2 comes out of Malachi 3.1, the last book written in the Old Testament. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you. Who could this be? Who could this be? Who will prepare your way, prepare the Messiah's way? This is written 400 years before John the Baptist stepped foot in the wilderness and started preaching 400 years and then as we see earlier it says as it is written in Isaiah the prophet Isaiah's prophecy is quoted in verse 3 the voice of the one crying in the wilderness make ready the way of the Lord make his path straight so this voice this messenger which appear in the wilderness Literally in the wilderness, but figuratively in the hearts, the wilderness of the hearts of the Israelites, making ready the way of the Lord. <laughs> I mean, this is an amazing portion of scripture here, church family. We're getting a glimpse, a sneak peek into the intra-Trinitarian conversation that the God the Father and God the Son are having with one another. We get to listen in on that type of dialogue. It's fascinating to be able to see this. And really what this shows us is this, that John the Baptist was part of the plan from eternity past. Eternity past. He was always a part of plan A. There was never any plan B, church. God had a plan from the very beginning to get his people back. And John the Baptist was that herald, that forerunner that would come before Jesus Christ. And I just thought I would uh, reference Isaiah 40, verse 3. Let's turn there if you have your Bibles. But I think I'll have a slide up for you. And I'm going to be reading out of the Legacy Standard Bible, which is a new translation. 
Similar to the translation I'm reading right now, or I'm preaching out of right now, the NASB, but the Legacy Standard Bible translates Lord for, as Yahweh. A voice is calling, prepare the way for Yahweh in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Now, why do I take time to kind of talk about this is this. This is so critical that we understand this. Who is Yahweh? Mark, John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, is quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3, and, and applying it to his day, his situation. A voice crying. That's John the Baptist. That's John the Baptist. A voice crying in the wilderness for Yahweh. May, prepare the way for Yahweh. Yahweh is Jesus Christ himself. In no unclear terms, church family, this is one of the most explosive, one of the most blockbuster texts to prove that the Bible claims that Jesus is God himself. Mark believed that John the Baptist was preparing the way for Yahweh. And Jesus Christ is Yahweh himself. And what's so significant about that? Well, Yahweh is a covenant name for God. It's his own personal name that he lets us know about. And Jesus is God. Yahweh, or Jesus, is the one who spoke creation into existence. He was there in Genesis chapter 1. Yahweh is the one who promised deliverance in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned. Because I'm going to bring a seed through the line of the woman to restore your people. Yahweh is the one that called Abram or Abraham to leave his home to become a mighty nation called Israel. Yahweh is the one that commissioned Moses in a burning bush and said, Moses, let lead my people out of Egypt. I hear their cry. I hear their suffering. Deliver my people out of Egypt. Yahweh is the one that was with the Israelites for 40 years in the wilderness and is the one who led them through Joshua into the promised land. Jesus Christ is Yahweh himself. I mean, this is an incredible affirmation of who we're talking about. Jesus Christ is God. The second member of the God, the second member of the Trinity, God the Son himself, Jesus Christ. And John the Baptist is that voice. Make way for the Lord. Make way for Yahweh. The Israelites would have understood exactly what he was talking about after 400 years of silence. And they knew that a prophet would be coming someday. And it took 400 years, but he showed up. And in, in, in Malachi 4 5, he says, Elijah will come. I believe that this is talking about John the Baptist, a type of Elijah. Matthew eleven four, Jesus says, John the Baptist is Elijah who came. Luke 1.17 says, John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah's one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. And even as we look at verse 6 of Mark chapter 1, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. And he, his diet was locusts and wild honey. It's interesting. This is an interesting description of, of, of John the Baptist. Why does Mark... And, and Mark, Matthew and Luke all record this. It's because this was a, the wardrobe of a prophet. 
Even, even the Bible says out of 2 Kings 1 that Elijah wore something like this. Elijah wore this leather belt. This is a, a, the wardrobe, the uniform of the prophet that was to come in the Old Testament. Here he is, none other than John the Baptist himself. And his role was to let people know that the Lord is coming, but also to make his path straight. Make his path straight. Going back to the herald and his delegates that will be coming to announce the coming of the king, one of their roles was to make the travel from headquarters or the kingdom or the capital to their new conquered land safe. As you can imagine, those ancient days, it wasn't safe. A lot of bandits, a lot of rebels. They didn't have paved roads, mountains and hills and valleys, crooked paths, rugged terrain. It was difficult. This was not suitable for royalty to be stepping foot on. So they would literally be working to clear the way, making it a smooth travel for royalty to show up at the new land. John the Baptist was preparing the way of the Lord. Not necessarily a, a route or a road, but more like clearing the way into the hearts of men and women so that the Lord would be able to enter into the hearts, into the hearts of, of the men and women of Israel. And just like John the Baptist, we've all been called to serve in this way. Every single one of us. None of us are wearing camel's hair. None of us are prophets. But if you're a Christian, we're called to herald and prepare the way of the Lord into the hearts of men and women and children. Our message is that Jesus Christ is coming back. He came once, but he's coming back. Our job is to speak into the hearts of men and women and to bring down the mountain of pride and self-assurance and be brought low. To raise up the valley of shallow thinking, to help people think more biblically and to discern what is going on in the world. To make smooth, rugged, and rough living people who do not live wisely nor in a godly manner. All this is to prepare the way for God to show up in their hearts. Now, these ancient heralds will also announce the king's terms. This, this sets up our second point here. The defeated people, oftentimes lying in the ruins, burned houses, burned buildings, their religious centers were destroyed. They're defeated. They were defeated, and they knew it, and they're at the mercy of the new king and his empire. And the herald will come. The king is coming. The king is coming. People, you must turn away from following your old rulers and to submit to the new king. You must surrender your old allegiances and old affections for your old ruler and come under the new king. Otherwise, face the full force of the empire that's coming against you, you will be crushed. I mean, th th this is a message. They want These heralds will help kind of transition the people into the new kingdom, a new empire. That's how this worked. And the more people came into the kingdom, whether they're conquered people or not, nonetheless, the kingdom kept growing. 
So John the Baptist, second point, prepare the way of the Lord by heralding the Lord's judgment. The Lord's judgment, verse 4 and 5. Let's turn to verse 4. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. There he is, preaching. He came preaching. John the Baptist suddenly appears in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Preaching. This is proclaiming, announcing, heralding, making a passionate public proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. I mean, John the Baptist shows up with his hair on fire and both guns blazing with a clear and distinct message. I mean, you could feel the intensity just looking at Mark chapter 1, verse 4. And the essence of his message was this. He was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And look what happened, verse 5. And all the country of Judea was going out to him. And all the people of Jerusalem. They're coming out. They're leaving their cities. They left the temple. They left their comforts of home. They're humbling themselves by coming into the wilderness. They're, it was amazing. All these people wanted to be baptized by John the Baptist. You could tell how hungry the people were after 400 years of silence. But John the Baptist cut to the chase real quick. John the Baptist wasn't playing games. He didn't come playing games. He, he knew it needed to be real. And he warns the people, before you come out and get baptized by me, he says this, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John the Baptist was a judgment preacher. He would preach on judgment. He'll preach on hell. He'll preach on sinners being judged. Luke 3, 9 says this, the axe is already laid at the foot of the fruitless trees to be thrown into the fire. Luke 3, 18 says this, his winnowing fork, talk about the Lord's winnowing fork, is in his hand to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is talking about judgment. In no unclear terms, John the Baptist comes putting forth the terms of the king. This is not an optional thing. You either come under him or you will be judged. And he's basically calling for real repentance, real confession of sin. And he, like I said earlier, he wasn't here playing games. And so John the Baptist talks about the forgiveness of sins because, like as we talked about, the eternal judgment is coming. He was telling them, he was warning them. That's how Malachi chapter 4 ends, talking about judgment and fire. And eternal judgment is eternal separation from God. Eternal judgment is eternal punishment from God. Eternal judgment deals with the eternal hell. This is what John the Baptist is talking about. Against all sinners, all unforgiven sinners. And we all need to be forgiven of our sins. In other words, we need to be acquitted of our guilt. We need to have our debt of sin canceled. This is what it means to be forgiven by God. So that God no longer holds us accountable for our sins. This is the issue. Sin is the issue. Sin is the number one issue that the Lord is coming to resolve. And John the Baptist is preparing the way. He's clearing the way. He's clearing any ambiguity of why the Lord is coming. He's not coming to set up a new empire. He's not coming to get rid of Rome. He's not coming to make 
our best life now. He's coming to deal with a sin issue that we all deal with, no matter where we're from, how old we are. It's a sin issue. Sin, what is sin, you may be asking. Sin, in other words, is missing the mark. Missing the mark. Missing the mark of God's holy and perfect standard. That means whenever we make one mistake, we've missed the mark. Whenever we got angry, we missed the mark. Whenever we had some lust in our heart, we missed the mark. Whenever we've not told the truth, we missed the mark. And it goes on and on and on and on. The list is endless, as we know. And when we miss the mark, we've offended God himself. And I was with a staff meeting this week, and, and, and we were going through a book. We are going through a book study. It's been great. And one of the big issues that our pastors brought up was, we need to understand the seriousness of sin. Too often in the gospel presentation, we just go right to love, we go right to uh, forgiveness, right to salvation, but we really don't explain what sin is. That really pricked my heart. That really exhorted me to make sure our church family understands what sin is all about. A counselor once wrote, when dealing with a counselee, often when dealing with counselees, you will find it necessary to show them what Show them that when they hedge regarding their sin, calling it something less or excusing themselves for it, they, listen now, they will not be prepared for him, let's talk about for God, to change them by his spirit. Meaning when people do not rightfully acknowledge their own sin, whether it's in a marriage, whether it's between son and daughter, whatever it may be, or employee, and you have an excuse or it's somebody else's fault, that closes you up from being ministered to by the Spirit. That's what this counselor is saying. Particularly, point out that sin is sin, not sickness or some genetic flaw. I was just born this way. This is how my family is. This is how our culture is. This is what we do. This is what the environment I grew up in. No. Today, people are excusing their sin on the strength of those fallacious ideas. We need to deal with sin, in other words. And it's important for us to understand this, church family. We sin and miss the mark not because of, I made a mistake. We sin and miss the mark because it's in our nature. It's deeper than our behavior. It's much deeper than our, a physical or mental issue. It's more than in our environment or how I was raised by my parents. It's deeper than that. And I'm going to ask you this way, church family. I want, I want us to kind of think through this a little bit. I'm going to ask a question here and tell me which one do you think is more accurate. Number one, question number one, are people naturally good, but we eventually learn to be bad being part of this world? So number one, are people naturally good? Are people just born good and eventually will learn to do bad and wrong things? That's question number one. Or is question number two more accurate? accurate? Are people naturally just evil? What would you say in your mind right now? How would you answer this question? This is a critical issue for us to resolve, to understand. So we understand our issue and then we also understand people better. It's the second one. Man, 
men and women, my children, your children, your babies are born as sinners. That's what it is. That's what it is. That's, it's, it's in our spiritual DNA. It's in our spiritual DNA. DNA. And that, that deadly spiritual chromosome has been passed down from generation, from generation, generation, starting from our first father, Adam. That's what the Bible says. And all men and women and children are born into sin. Psalm 51 says, David writes, David writes in Psalm 51, I was brought forth in iniquity and in guilt. In sin, my mother conceived me. Therefore, our hearts are corrupt. It's, it's our nature. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. We have spiritual heart disease. And whenever we do something wrong, when we, we, we lash out at our family members, we, we lose our patience, it isn't, this is because this is how my family was. It isn't necessarily because that's, that person bothered me. Luke six forty five. Jesus says this, the good man, Luke six forty five. the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasures brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from what, from that which fills his heart. So, your heart, our hearts, my heart, is where it all starts. And the bad news is this. The wages of sin is death. And we need a new heart. And there's nothing you or I could do about it. Nothing. Nothing. If we had a bad physical heart, maybe we could get some surgery. Maybe even get some kind of a heart transplant. Maybe. But this is a spiritual heart issue. There's nothing you and I could do. So John the Baptist is making crystal clear the point about sin. He's, how is he clearing the way for the Lord? By defining clearly what the issue is. So the people know why the Lord is coming. So there's a dire dependence, dire need. I need you, Lord. I need you. John the Baptist is clearing the way, preparing the way for the Lord. And he talks about repentance, metanoia, repentance. Repentance is more than remorse or regret. Like, I feel bad. I'm sorry I got caught, right? I'm sorry everybody knows what I did. That's remorse. That's regret. It's really recognizing, it starts from recognizing our terminal condition. We're sinners and we're going to be judged and there's nothing I could do about it. Repentance is leading to a change of mind, heart, and will where you do an about face, all right? About face, you do a 180. In your mind, you used to treasure the world, now you treasure Christ. I choose to treasure Christ above anything in this world. About facing the heart where we used to rejoice over ourselves. Let's celebrate who we are. Instead, there's godly sorrow for our sinful condition. About facing 180 in the will, we used to live for sin and self. Now we're saying, I'm going to live for Christ and for others. This is repentance. This is repentance. Let me give you another quote that may be helpful. Thomas Brooks, a Puritan, says, True repentance is a turning from all sin. 
Not just that one or that one or this one, but all sin without any reservation or exception. He never truly repented of any sin whose heart is not turned against every sin. So if, if we're harboring some kind of a sin, but we repent of others, that's not true repentance. God wants all of us. The king wants all of us. That's what he's saying here, Thomas Brooks. Now, I get it. My family, friends could tell you this. Fighting sin is a lifelong battle, is it not? The Bible says if you say you don't sin, then you're lying. <laughs> That's what the Bible says. And, but repentance is, in essence, just saying the trajectory of my life is redirected to follow Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what we're talking about here, repentance. I used to be heading this way. Now I'm, my trajectory of life is heading this way. It may be, look like a stock market where it goes up and down, but the trajectory, it's a good stock. It's heading in the right direction, Right? And John the Baptist prepared the way for the Lord. He did. He preached on sin and repentance. He preached on judgment. He prepared the people to receive Christ as Lord. I've heard it said this way, soft preaching, meaning just all positive teaching and just let's keep it light teaching, produces hard hearts. It's all positive. It's all positive. We don't have to talk about the dark things. We don't have to talk about the hard things. We don't have to be challenged. It's just, let's just affirm, 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 pat each other on the back. That produces hard hearts. But also heard it put like this, hard preaching, speaking the truth in love, produces soft hearts. That's what John the Baptist was doing. The Israelites were hardened. They needed 400 years of wilderness plus spirit-filled, strong preaching to prepare the way of the Lord. And their hearts were soft and ready to receive, and therefore many people, all of Judea, all of Jerusalem, was coming out to be baptized and they're confessing their sins. And John the Baptist prepared the way of the Lord by preaching about his coming. So for us as gospel people, how do we prepare the way for the Lord? Clearly off of point number two, if we're listening to how John the Baptist was led to do it, we need to talk about sin and judgment. There is no good news without the bad news, church, right? We get this. As we prepare the way of the Lord into the hearts of our children, into the hearts of friends, into the hearts of relatives, our next-door neighbor, our sports teammates, we build relationships so we could talk about sin and judgment. Sin and judgment. Really, what we need to do is establish a dire need for a Savior, Jesus Christ himself. Once you got them there, then they're ready to hear of the solution. But before we even get there, we can't even talk about the solution. You don't go to the oncologist unless you know you have an issue. You don't do that. So John the Baptist came heralding the coming of Christ and the judgment of Christ. Now, this will launch us into our final point, which will be a briefer point, but the herald, going back to the herald, he would announce the king's coming. The king is coming! The king is coming! Then he will announce, here are his terms, people. And then thirdly, he would say this, 
He'll announce the king's offer. He'll announce the king's offer. And the king is coming. All you got to do is bend the knee, kiss the king, receive him as your king, and he'll treat you as part of his kingdom. He'll treat you as a family member. This is the offer. Knowing that you're defeated, knowing that you're laying, your lives are in ashes and rubble, you could become part of the king's empire. And this is what John the Baptist does. In point number three, John the Baptist prepared the way of the Lord by heralding the Lord's grace. The Lord's grace. Verse seven and eight. The Lord's grace. At this point now, before we even get to verse seven, John the Baptist had a huge following. I mean, all of Judea, all of Jerusalem. How many people is that? That's countless people are coming out. Now, do I believe literally every single human being from Judea and Jerusalem came out? No, I don't think that. But all kinds of people are coming out. All kinds. They're ready to come out. Incredible response. John the Baptist was primed to establish his own empire, plant his own megachurch, so to speak, his own following. Are you the one? Are you the Christ? Are you the one that we've been waiting for for so many years? Well, good thing John the Baptist wasn't reading his own press clippings or counting the amount of likes or followers that he had. He he wasn't doing any of that. (laughs) He wore camel's hair and wore a leather belt in the wilderness. He wasn't that type of guy. Verse 7, what does he say? And he was preaching, there he is preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I. And I'm not fit to stoop down and untie the thong or strap of his sandals. I'm not the one. John the Baptist is the one who says, he must increase, I must decrease. I'm not even fit to do the menial task of of a slave to untie this one's sandal. I'm definitely not the one. He makes it crystal clear he's not the one to be worshipped and followed. John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes the sin of the world, takes away the sin of the world. And then he goes on in verse 8, finishing up, I baptize you with water. In other words, I just gave you an outward symbol. I just washed your skin a little bit. But this is the real thing coming, not me. I'm only the one to prepare the way. Verse 8, But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean, John the Baptist? What are you talking about? Well, let's turn to Ezekiel 36 in the Old Testament. The Israelites would have understood this prophecy. They would have understood that this would happen someday. Ezekiel 36. They knew exactly what he is talking about. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. And therefore, we need to know exactly what he's talking about. Ezekiel 36, 25. God says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, talking to the Israelites, and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols, from all your guilt. I will wash you clean. How are you going to do this, God? Moreover, I will give you a new heart. I'll give you a heart transplant. And I will put a new spirit within you. 
I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a brand new heart for God, a spiritual heart transplant. I will put my spirit within you. I will baptize you. I will immerse you with my own spirit. I will come live within you. I will live and give you rebirth, regeneration. You will become a new creation in this spiritual transformation. And what would happen to people like this? And I will cause you to walk in my statutes. I'm going to cause you to obey me. I'm going to cause you to follow me as Lord. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Verse 29, moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness. There it is. Verse 33, on that day I will cleanse you from all your iniquities. This is the issue here. There it is, as crystal clear as it gets. The one who's coming after John the Baptist will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And for any Christian in this building, that's exactly what happened to us in that day when we became sons and daughters of God. Jesus Christ will go on to say, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Believe that Jesus Christ, God himself, died for your sins. Believe that, that Jesus Christ is your Savior, that Jesus Christ is able to acquit you of your guilt by taking the punishment that you and I deserve. And repent. Turn from following your sinful ways, turn from following yourself, and turn to fo- and follow Jesus Christ as Lord. Now this is Communion Sunday. We get to come to the Lord's table and take the Lord's Supper together as a church family. It's special. And I believe 1 Corinthians talks about this. I'm going to just give you a connection from the Lord's Supper to what John the Baptist preached. I believe the Lord's table is very emblematic of the message that John the Baptist preached. 1 Corinthians 10, 26 says this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, communion, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So every time we take communion together with one another, we're basically affirming to God and to one another, we believe that Jesus Christ is coming back. We believe that Jesus Christ is coming back. So as you take communion, look around. Everyone who's taking communion in, in good conscience is believing and saying and affirming to God and to one another here that Jesus Christ is coming back. This time to collect his people and to render judgment to non-believers. Number two, we believe that Jesus Christ is the judge. The Bible in 1 Corinthians 10 says we need to take communion in a worthy manner. So what would be unworthy? Number one, if you're not a Christian. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, please do not come to the Lord's table. This is for Christians. This is for church family. This is for the family of God. However, you could be a Christian and still take communion in an unworthy manner. What do you mean, pastor? If you're taking communion and you're harboring some kind of sin right now that you know of, that will be taking communion in a very unworthy manner. Basically, you'll be mocking God and mocking the whole brotherhood and sisterhood here. 
So if there's something in your heart right now that you know that comes to mind that you need to repent of, repent. Confess your sins before the Lord. Done. And come to the Lord's table with a clean and clear conscience so you could take communion in a worthy manner, in a genuine manner. And then thirdly, you're proclaiming the grace of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 24 says this, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance. Remember my body that I gave up for you. In this way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup, the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's remember the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ as we take the cup, as we take the bread. And if you are in the wilderness period right now, what a great time to come to the Lord with open hand and say, Lord, A, I need your forgiveness to, to forgive me a sinner so I could be part of your kingdom. I'm going I'm to stop following myself and follow you. Or Christians, maybe you're in the low point of your Christian walk. I told you this, church family, when we started the sermon, God does some of his best work in the wilderness. Something good is about to happen. However, you need to turn to the Lord. This is how good things happen, the Lord. Remember, the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to preach about your grace. God, we believe that without preaching on sin and judgment, grace doesn't mean anything to us. Father, we know that you are the creator of all things and we have sinned against you. And Lord, we know that you will be judging all sinners to eternal destruction someday. But we also know, Father, that you sent the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Thank you, Jesus, for being obedient to the Father. Thank you for taking on the wrath of the Father for your people. Lord, I pray that we, as a church family, will understand the seriousness of sin even more and the judgment that follows so that we will rejoice and and, and Worship you for the grace that you have given to us. Thank you. You are the Lamb of God, Lord Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. I pray that will be the words in our mouth as we speak to other people as we clear the way for you. Thank you for the Lord's Supper. Thank you for a regular reminder of your commitment to us. You died for us. You rose again. You're coming back for us. You're praying for us right now. We affirm all these things. Thank you for the reminder of our commitment to you. By your grace, we are committed to you, your people. Father, thank you for a reminder reminder of our commitment to one another here at Evergreen Church. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You're so good. In Jesus' name, amen.